You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. I'm Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, I need to take a moment to comment on the stunning news that President Trump and the First Lady have both tested positive for COVID-19. As reported yesterday, consultation with this group, I recommended we bring the president up to Walter Reed as a precautionary measure to provide state-of-the-art monitoring and any care that he may need. Just 72 hours into the diagnosis now, the first week of COVID, and in particular days 7 to 10, are the most critical in determining the likely course of this illness. At this time, the team and I are extremely happy with the progress the president has made. Thursday, he had a mild cough and some nasal congestion and fatigue. That's right. Disease and infection have reached far into the White House and beyond. The implications of his diagnosis are simply enormous and stretch far beyond what this means for the campaign and his re-election, posing all manner of national security and financial issues for the country. Out of sheer idiocy, that man basically infected himself. Vladimir Putin is watching all of this and laughing his ass off. Still, I wish them both a speedy recovery, despite my animus for Donald Trump. We're all human beings, and I wish no ill health upon any man. That said, I may be stunned, but I'm certainly not surprised. He has made the mocking of masks a central tenet of his campaign. He's downplayed its threat, lied repeatedly to the American people about the prognosis, and he has viewed the entire pandemic through a selfish and myopic lens. Well, Mr. President, if you were worried about how the pandemic was going to affect your chance for re-election, then you're in really deep shit now. The one sliver of hope you have here is to level with the American people. Let them know you were wrong about the coronavirus, that everyone needs to wear a mask, that this disease is deadly and it's spreading. You talk about how the end of the pandemic is near, how states should reopen their schools, that you brought back fucking football, that it's safe, that we're safe, but we're not. And no, we are not. If the most secure place on earth is vulnerable, what chance do we have to safely open the rest of our society? No, the only move to make here is to look America in the eye and tell us the truth for a change. But you won't do that, will you? That would mean backtracking all of your bullshit, and you're already neck deep in your own sewage. There's a certain rough karmic justice in all of this. Let's face it, you kind of deserve to get COVID. You practically dared to be infected. What's troubling in this will be investigated in the weeks to come is the timeline. How you hid the positive diagnosis of Hope Hicks in order to attend a closed-door New Jersey fundraiser. I assume everyone in that room is now getting tested, as well as wondering why they just wrote you a check. This is once again the starkest reminder 
that Donald Trump cares for no one or anything but himself. And now back to the show. My guest today is Stephanie Winston Walcoff, author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Melania and Me. In many ways, Miss Winston Walcoff is the yin to my yang with our books, serving as disturbing funhouse mirror reflections of one another. Although they chronicle two fundamentally very different people, their stories are very much the same. I read it though with a singular purpose, to understand how my actions and the actions of Donald J. Trump were viewed through the eyes of someone other than myself. I've recounted how for over a decade, there was no one closer to Donald Trump than myself. Now we get to complete the puzzle by lifting the veil on the inscrutable Melania. They say I'm, I'm complicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. Their relationship began in 2003, when the first lady was a working model named Melania Naus. At the time, Wolkoff was working as the director of special events at Vogue and was one of the principal architects behind the success of the iconic Met Gala. It was there she met Melania, and the two became close friends, attending the Trump nuptials in 2005 and Melania's baby shower later that year. Meanwhile, her own work life was thriving. Vogue editor Anna Wintour sang her professional praises and the New York Times referred to her as the Lord Chief Planner of the Met Gala. Later, she became the fashion director for Lincoln Center before branching off on her own. It was then that Melania called upon her to plan the Trump inauguration. Back in New York, Melania has been keeping a low profile and has yet to fill top positions for her role as first lady. She has hired New York party planner Stephanie Winston Wolkoff as a senior advisor. Stephanie is 46 and a longtime friend of Melania's. She made a name for herself by staging the glamorous Met Gala, a role that came in handy when she helped plan the Trump inaugural ball. Under normal circumstances, serving as the executive producer and chief creative officer for the presidential inauguration would be a career-defining achievement. And so too would serving as senior advisor to the First Lady of the United States. Unfortunately, Trump world is a corrupt and toxic swamp that kills everything it touches. So, just like everyone else who encounters Donald Trump, Stephanie Winston Walkoff's dream quickly became a living nightmare. She was forced to abruptly resign after revelations that her firm was paid $26 million to plan the inauguration. Never mind that the media coverage of the payouts was overblown and Winston Walkoff was not charged with any wrongdoing. But the die had been cast, and in short order, she would be thrown under the bus by Melania, who issued a statement disavowing their years of long friendship. In reality, though, the inauguration had been an orgy of self-dealing and graft on the part of Trump and his cronies, it's only now being investigated by the Southern District of New York, all spurred to action, largely by revelations in Winston Walkoff's book. Intense new scrutiny tonight on President Trump's inauguration and the more than $100 million raised for it. Federal prosecutors in New York issuing a wide-ranging subpoena for documents and records on how the record amount of money was raised, where it came from, how it was spent. Investigators want to know who gave that money and what, if anything, was expected in return. So. With today's conversation, I hope to better understand the inner thoughts and true motivations of Melania in the face of Donald Trump's destructive behavior. Or how Wolkoff puts it succinctly, a Trump is a Trump is a Trump. It's a story that many have told about Donald Trump, but now it's Melania's turn to face the music. 
and the carefully designed facade she built to protect herself and her reputation is about to crumble. Melania, through the White House, has desperately fought to discredit Winston Wolkoff and stop the book's publication. Only the truth is a way of getting out. Let's listen now to that conversation. So I want to jump right into your book if we can. You write in the closing of your book, and I put this in quotes, Melania told me in her way that she was not part of the solution. She was part of the problem. Not speaking up and not fighting against the problem is being part of the problem. And I learned that the hard way. Melania is often presented as this private, cloistered individual above the fray of her husband's divisiveness. But in truth, according to your book, you say she's just as much a part of the muck. That's a really great question, Michael, because so many people envision Melania and they want to make up their own beliefs about her. The truth is the wall around her is her defense mechanism. And the secret to her happiness is to be authentically and unapologetically skin deep. The White House wanted her to be a counterbalance to Donald, someone with empathy and kindness. But at the end of the day, she has been able to control that narrative and still be the biggest enigma. Wow. So Melania is considered, in your, in your view, as an enigma. I suspect that that's probably why Melania didn't want you to publish this book. What do you think that she feared in terms of what your book has to say? I think what she fears most is that people will realize the truth that she's actually encouraging Donald to go for it, be aggressive. She's his biggest cheerleader but also all the false narrative and the perception that has been created over the years, that is something that they hold dear to their hearts. It's actually more important than anything. What do you mean by false narrative? Give me an example if you can. Perception is everything. Their entire lives are based on falsehoods, little white lies, who they were, where they came from, what they did. For example, before Donald met Melania, she was single and striving. We know she was a working model. That's all we really know. It was a transactional marriage for them both. Donald needed to be legitimized as much as Melania did. So by rolling her out of obscurity onto the red carpet at the Met Gala, it was a perfect way to legitimize his arm candy, a new Vogue cover model, and she as being a former and supermodel, as he keeps saying over and over. Interesting. Um, I mean, you're in the same sort of boat that I am, right? Uh, to Donald, you were to Melania. I mean, I was his first call every morning and his last call every night. You were really probably Melania's only girlfriend, so to speak. Question for you. Why did you dedicate the book to her then? Because I know I would never dedicate my book, Disloyal, to Donald J. Trump. When I was thinking about dedicating this book, obviously you think of family first. You really do. What they went through, the hardships they've suffered, Michael, everything that our families have been through, they've walked every moment of every second of every day, of every hardship, of every tear that we've had. But what I wanted the world to know was that Melania was aware of every single thing that was going on, day in and day out, and that she was just as much a part of this as I was. And so by telling this story through my friendship with Melania, it enabled me to write this book to Melania because I can substantiate every single story that's written in here that she was very much a part of. And at the end, 
betrayed our friendship on that. You and I have another similarity, Steph. Um, you were pressured by the Department of Justice and the Attorney General Bill Barr. Have you had any other fallouts from Trump world upon release of this book? And I bring that to what happened to me, which was they knew that my book Disloyal was going to be coming out. And so Bill Barr took it upon himself. And as we both know, nothing goes on without Donald Trump's approval. Bill Barr worked it in a situation that I was then remanded back to prison because I refused to sign a document waiving my constitutional rights. Have you had any other fallouts with Trump or with Bill Barr based upon the release of this book? Well, I think I need to back up for a second and just say that, you know, I think being involved in three different investigations um, having to do with the Trump administration, the Trump organization and the presidential inauguration committee is a full plate. Upon hearing about this book before um, its release, the White House um, sent several um, cease and desist letters, as well as defamation claims. You received them probably from Charles Harder. No, I actually received them from Kasowitz. Mark Kasowitz, another former friend of mine, unfortunately sycophantic and looking for the power grab under the Trump moniker. Look, they want to stop everyone from speaking the truth. And the reality is I've got to advocate for the truth, just like you do, Michael. And I feel like it's my civic duty and not only just to share my story, but to tell the truth because of what I witnessed, like you witnessed firsthand working with the Trumps and their cohorts and their lack of honesty. And they have no loyalty whatsoever. So for me, you know, it's a, this is a character history of graft and we know it all too well. So in my book, Disloyal, I talk about the day that I stood before the House Oversight Committee before the late, great Elijah Cummings. And that testimony sparked what's been said 18 different investigations into various different aspects of the Trump campaign or the Trump world. Now, your book has also set off a new investigation into the illegal spending and fundraising around the inauguration. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I was originally brought in um, to help produce the 58th presidential inauguration. Well, let's start by asking, who brought you in? Well, I had a little conversation with Melania at the at Trump Tower um, about it, but the official ask had to come from Ivanka. Why Ivanka? Well, Melania was my friend and Ivanka was the official um, go-between and introduced me to the presidential inauguration committee chairman, Tom Barrick, who um, as well, Ivanka was on daily emails as well as in daily conversations with Rick Gates, myself, in the planning of the inauguration. Interesting, okay. Um, and so, you know, the, Melania explained to me the family had a gathering, a family gathering, and they all agreed um, that I would be the perfect, quote, perfect person to produce the inauguration. And I don't think so much that it was um, an agreement that had to do with um, friendship. I think it had to do with understanding that my Achilles heel is my loyalty and that I also have the experience and the expertise to pull off um, such extravagant events under such tight frame. You, you do understand that I find this to be very comical 
in the fact that I know what was legitimately going on behind door number one while you're somewhere lost behind door number two. We'll call that the Ivanka door, right? The Tom Barak um, door. Here's the reality. The reality is they had nobody within which to produce the event. They came to you because of your expertise. They came to you because of your friendship with Melania in order to get somebody who's qualified in order to do this because they had nobody. Not only did they have nobody to produce the event, they had nobody in order to sing at the event. They had no headliners. We couldn't pay anyone enough money in order to perform, you would say, well, how much is that person in order to come to perform? Well, under normal circumstances, they charge a million dollars. And the response that, we, that was received was, I wouldn't do it for a hundred million dollars. I have no interest in being a part of Trump's inaugural procession. So you know who came to the rescue? Well, it sounds to me like Ivanka and Melania threw you. Well, they threw me into the mix, but our greatest savior was Mark Burnett. Well, that, of course, makes perfect sense, right? I mean, they had made, what, 400? So here's something that people don't understand. Donald Trump owned 50% of The Apprentice. The other 50% was owned by Mark Burnett. So if Donald Trump made $465 million, well, so did Mark Burnett, right? And NBC as well. Um, Tell me, a bit, tell me a little bit more. They brought you in. I'm so fascinated to hear this because they brought you in. They had nobody else, and yet they still played the power move, which is that, well, we have to check you out. We have to make sure that we think you're capable of doing it because if you didn't do it, you understand nobody else was there. Well, here's the thing, Michael. That's what I thought too, and that's what they made me believe. But behind the scenes, as you said, I think there was a door number three that – neither one of us knew about, which was what was going on behind Donald's door day in and day out with his presidential inauguration committee, entertainment committee that was created, which never did anything. Well, how could you do anything when every single time you ask somebody, would you care to perform for a million dollars at the presidential inauguration? And they tell you, no. Well, with my relationships, I called two industry insiders, John Sykes, Ron Delsner. And I asked for their honest opinion. What do I do? I'm in a position where no one wants to be a part of this. And they were amazingly honest. And they understood that I was coming from a place of sincere, want, sincerely wanting to produce a presidential inauguration the United States of America would be proud of. They couldn't even help me. And they were at least honest about it. Whereas everybody else kept telling Donald, Melania, Ivanka from NBC, from all of the people that have worked with them, that they will help them. They will help them. All of their largest enter the, the donors, the donors who are, have access to the entertainment industry promise the sun, the moon, and the stars. They couldn't deliver on one person. Elton John, Beyonce, you name it. But these are all relationships that they had. Right, and there was no way that they were going to be able to make that request and that request be taken seriously because they had already said no. They had said no to everyone that had made the request of them. So let me ask you this question. Now that you have set off this new investigation with the United States Attorney General, you think that this vindicates your account of what took place? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I really do, Michael. I feel that, um, you know, I think that the truth 
does prevail. And for both of us, I think it's the most important thing for us to speak about. And the United States Attorney General, District of Columbia, Carl Racine, dismissing um, the claims that their misdealings during the inauguration um, actually do vindicate me. And it only shows that the White House is continuing with the narrative that I am, quote, paranoid or, quote, creating things that aren't true. They will say whatever they need to to discredit every single person that doesn't follow the rule of law, well, you which like is their me. rule of law. Well, Stephanie, you, like me, spend a lot of time with documentary evidence in order to write your book, in order to produce the the quotes and in order to produce the the stories that you tell about your relationship with Melania. I don't know about you, but I found writing the book to be very difficult. At some points I found it cathartic, but I found it very difficult because as I'm writing and I'm telling these stories, besides for disliking myself and looking and saying that I've really let my moral compass go way, way south, there was still this protection that I was thinking of as I was writing the stories about Trump. Do I want to say that? What will people? And then I'm saying to myself, wait, wait, schmuck, you're sitting in fucking prison. What are you doing? I'm staring at concrete walls. I'm working at the water treatment plant at Otisville, staring at a concrete wall, writing down stories. And every now and then I would get this pang, this feeling like, Am I being disloyal to Donald Trump? And the more that that happened to me, the more I turned around and I said to myself, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm being disloyal. You know what? I'm actually not the one who's disloyal. He is. You have the same feelings when you were writing your book? I did. And I have to tell you, the day that I finally was able to close the last chapter of my book and finish writing that last line was... The the day that I actually stopped questioning myself, um, except until recently when I was put on the spot by the White House um, spokespeople saying that I was um, making my story up. Yeah, of course. Well, not only did you make your story, but mine is also factually inaccurate. It's a telltale. It's, it's science fiction, according to, what's his name, Murtaugh, this new sycophantic asshole that's sitting there in the White House making all sorts of allegations that are just complete bullshit and nonsense. Um, I do want to turn around and say to you, you bring up a good point. For me, I finished the book while I was here on home confinement. And then all of a sudden, I get remanded back to prison. Ultimately, thank goodness to Danya Perry, my attorney, who's a fabulous, fabulous lawyer. She is really one of the kindest and most quality attorneys I've ever come across. And then Judge Hellerstein, I can't say enough about that decision. Determining that Bill Barr, who's named as a defendant in my case, did this as retaliation towards me, again, for my failure to want to release and to sign over my constitutional rights. I then came home and I was like, whoa, whoa, there's more. Now I have an ending to the story from the final chapter. And it was only until I finally finished that and we edited it and so on and I gave it to my publisher on a little thumb drive 
did I actually have the feeling that you're expressing. It was almost like a weight was lifted from my soul. But I have to tell you, when I think of disloyal, as soon as I needed to let a reporter listen to the tapes because the White House put me in that position, because they made sure that people didn't believe what I was saying, that little pang came back, Michael, because I only started pressing record once I had already been severed and accused of criminal activity. And so all of a sudden, all those emotions started coming back. And I think of the word disloyal, which again, is what they want people to think we are. Um, and that is the furthest from the truth. And we couldn't be more- um, Loyal. Loyal, right. And so in that moment, I felt, oh my God, am I being disloyal? Because I really didn't plan on, on ever playing these tapes or ever releasing them because they were for my protection. But now- now, no, it's a whole nother game. Now, I feel that in order to prove the fact that what we are saying is true, I think that truthfulness will come across in Melania's own words. And here they are. God, how does he have the energy? And he, well, he does, and he, you know, and he goes there, and you should see here these these people. He has such a base. He, you know, when he tra when he travels, and you could he, people that you know. Of course, he's the most popular Republican president ever. Yeah. He has really that base. The Republicans, he does. But you know, the media, it's it's only liberal. So it's you know, it's so not out there. But when you go in the middle of the country, everybody's like. You um, feel it. You feel the. Even war. when I travel and I go places that you know everybody's like uh, amazing right right it's, it's what's going on because you know it's it's a great economy people have a jobs unemployment it's if you google go google and read it and uh annie labovitz shot the porn hooker and she will be one of the issues september or october what do you mean she who, she shot the porn hooker? Stormy. Shut the fuck up. For what? Oh, you didn't read it? Yeah, it was yesterday it came out. For Vogue. She will be in Vogue. Uh, Annie Labovitz shot her. It's funny that you talk about that pang. That's what I was referring to when I was in prison. And I started to reminisce about going back to 2000 and and six, when I first started doing some work for Trump and the fun that we had, and then 2007, when he first asked me to come in and to work for him, and then him coming and Trump coming to my son's bar mitzvah, uh, and having us obviously trail around with him at Bedminster, New Jersey, so that he can make these fucking disgusting comments about my daughter, right? I want to take you back. So that's where my pang came from. Um, I want to take you back to your early days. You first met Melania while you were working for Vogue in 2003. And I'd love for you to describe those early days of your friendship. Because I do know that she attended your 40th birthday, like the way Trump attended my children's bar and bat mitzvahs. And you attended her nuptial, as well as her baby shower. So tell everybody about those, about those days. Those days were just... Um like any other day that you would spend with a friend, except you felt really special to be a part of really this friend's Really special, group. right? Like there, there are no feelings, there are no words to express that emotion that is so deep rooted inside of you that they 
care about you like they care about no one else. And it's very hard to explain that to anyone. It's not really that hard. When, when Trump, for example, invited us to Bedminster, I would get a phone call, Michael, what are you doing tonight? And I'm like, well, Mr. Trump, I'm, I'm in this city. Bring Laura, bring the children. Made me a member of every one of his golf courses. I had full access to anything, including I didn't have to pay for anything. But I said to him, if I come to the club, I'll take the membership. But if I eat something, I have to pay for it. Otherwise, I won't enjoy it. And if I'm going to play tennis or one of my children are going to play tennis or we're going to play golf, I have to pay for that. Now, hindsight being 2020, what an idiot I am. I should have done what everybody else in the Trump organization does. But the difference with that, Michael, is that Melania didn't have access to giving me anything. I actually opened the door for her while I was working at Vogue. And I think I was more of an attraction to Melania and Donald for them because what were they doing for me? It wasn't as if I needed anything from them. I actually saw Melania as this nice, sweet, young striving model that I befriended. She was sweet. She was friendly. Andre and I would help her, you know, get ready for the gala and we would spend more time with her and we would have lunches with her. And the more we got to know her, the more we liked her. So it's interesting where people say, oh, she, you know, hung on to the Trumps because of their celebrity or, you know, actually it's quite the other way around. What I did for Melania is enabled her to be a part of the fashion and entertainment industry in a very different way. In a very high way. Very high profile, very, uh, more than high profile. Would high you say, profile. would you say huge? Huge. There you go. So, so we're talking about now pre-Melania to the marriage. So it was around this time that Melania in your book, you state, received a makeover from legendary Vogue editor, and you just referred to him, Andre Leon Talley. Do you think there was a conscious effort made to construct a new, classy Melania? We'll call her, for example, a Melania 2.0 that can go along with Donald Trump's sort of um, burnished image as a result of The Apprentice? Because you write in your book, I was there in the beginning and watched her go from gold plate to 24 karat gold. You bet. But here's the thing. No one at Vogue... Andre, myself, or anyone else had any idea that we were playing a role in the making of a new Mark Burnett production, the making of Melania, which then went into the making of the marriage, which then went into the making of a baby. And now I'm an American citizen to the first lady of the United States of America. That's a pretty great rollout. And I would call those two great dynamic decades. Wow. Because you also then said in a BBC interview, I do believe that it's a transactional marriage. Donald got his arm candy. The Vogue cover legitimized Melania, which then, of course, legitimized Donald as well. And Melania got two dynamic decades. Talk to me more about the transactional marriage, right? I mean, it's easy. We all know that Donald Trump fancies himself as a ladies' man, and Melania is clearly a beautiful woman. Was it really all about the arm candy slash knocking off this burnished image? Or was there actually some love there? Well, I think it was their kind of love. I mean, because I did spend time with them alone. Um, and she was, unlike any other Trump insider or family member, Melania was actually able to tell Donald whatever she was thinking, however she felt, whatever she thought. And she would say it in such a tone that, you know, her eyes would sparkle, she'd tilt her head, and he would listen to her, whether or not he actually listened to anything and did anything she said, 
he at least listened to her. It was, um, you know, I don't know how to explain. You have to be in the room with them to see the way they interact. When people ask me, do you think that they're getting divorced? I think to myself, are you out of your mind? Melania's not going anywhere. Why would she? There was a statement once made by Melania when they asked her, would you have married Donald if he didn't have all this money? And her response back, do you think he would have married me if I didn't look this way? Right. So I understand the transaction that you're referring to. Look, Melania wasn't so naive as to think their relationship didn't serve a purpose for each of them. But as I'd come to see, as our friendship grew closer, theirs was a kind of love nonetheless. And it really was. Call it whatever you may, it is transactional. She got something, he got something. Now, a lot of people have claimed, well, everyone has it's a transactional marriage. You know, each of you get something out of one another. This is a whole different ballgame. Well, yeah, I mean, my marriage, my transaction is my love, love for my wife. It's love. Right? right? I mean, I didn't have money when I first married her. I made it while we were together. I, I don't know if I would call my marriage transactional. But here's the thing. You filled that void for Donald with Melania. You were the husband at times that had to support Melania in ways that husbands do. You took care of a lot of things for Melania that normally a husband would take care of. That phone call that I make when I know I need my husband and he is there for me no matter what, well, I know for a fact that those calls were made to you because you and I would even sometimes run into each other at Trump Tower inside the apartment with Melania. And that's what makes this even worse, I think, than people could possibly understand just about betrayal, is that we were so intricately interwoven into their most innermost beings and what they needed on a daily basis from one another. We supplied in different ways. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Because, you know, look, let me, let me be very frank here. Donald Trump is not an attractive man. You know, right in his old age, and I've seen him in the locker room. I've seen him in his tidy whities, right? I've seen him with his Greg Ullman hair when he's putting up the comb over and spraying five pounds of Aquanet in the air where you're choking. You need a, a gas mask because it's that crazy. How do you think that she ends up managing to be intimate with him at this point, especially after? All of the stories about Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, about the sexual relationships that he had, unprotected sexual relationships, because the thing that I do know about Melania is that she's very private and she holds herself to a level that is certainly higher than what Trump does. Or is she more like Trump, just Trump is the showman in the front? lines and Melania is exactly like he is in the back lines. Do you really know that? No. Tell me, tell me, tell me more. I mean, is there anything that happened that you could think of that would explain that? Because for me, again, I talk about it in my book so often. She and he, I don't put on the same plane, right? And only after reading your book, and finding out that there are some comments that were made about me post the raid. And when I ended up deciding 
that it was time to speak truth to power? Did she take offense to that? And that actually upset me. It really hurt me a lot because things that I had done for her and for her family and, her, and, and for Baron, I would never have expected that she would say those sort of things when I had gone so far out of my way to protect her. Melania will always back up Donald, no matter what. It's the same thing that happened with me. When the time came that I needed her to just speak the truth, one sentence, one sentence. What she, sentence are you referring to? That Stephanie Winston Walkoff did everything properly and worked as, and as worked as my senior advisor this entire year and that I was not fired and that I did not receive $26 million. Um, but as the White House counsel told her, there was a possible pick investigation and she not being um, a private citizen was unable to speak on my behalf. Right. What really hurt me as I was reading your book and I started to get an understanding more from Melania is that it's almost as if though she just doesn't care. She doesn't care about you. She doesn't care about me. She doesn't care about anything. And, I, and I'm going to then draw your attention. You'll probably remember this, especially being from the Vogue background, that there was a jacket that she wore that caused quite a stir. And I believe on the back of the jacket, it says, I don't care. Do you? You remember that? Oh, I remember that. Tell me. I remember did, calling. Did you ever have a conversation with her and say, why the hell were you wearing that jacket? It's such a bad timing in light of everything that was going on with the children, being taken from their parents, thrown in cages. Listen, Melania, when I spoke to her about it, I actually said, Melania, I would have jumped on you. Um, and she said to me, you wouldn't have jumped on me. Um, you wouldn't have seen me. And... Melania's take on the fact that she has said it directly to me. I do what I want. Nobody controls me. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And she means it. Um, you know, well, she certainly meant it when she decided that she was going to allow Barron to finish out the school year. And she was going to basically take a hiatus as the first lady yeah, until the school year ended. I actually gave her an enormous amount of credit, as did other members of the, of the board, of trustees for the school. Most people would pack up. They would send their stuff straight to Washington. We helped to figure out. I helped to figure out. Actually, I didn't help. I did it. I found the school for Barron with her. We went. We, we liked it. It's a gorgeous school. Great people. Great teachers. We knew he would be happy there. I would have picked myself up if I was the first lady and I would have gone with my husband. But she stood on principle. Look, I think that um, as far as Melania suffering great anguish and being misunderstood by the public and staying in New York because she wanted Barron to finish out the school year, again, I think that there is a lot that people just don't understand about Melania Trump. And that is she does not care what you think or feel. And I she has said to me many times, she knows what the truth is, and it doesn't need to be explained. Some things don't need to be dignified with an answer. And those are her exact words to me when she and I spoke about the Access Hollywood tape. That's okay. Well, then how about when Melania was presented with the evidence on Trump's infidelity? According to your book, she'd often reply to you that she knew what she married. What does that mean to you? Because I'm not really sure that 
most wives would be that forgiving, especially under the circumstances, and especially the fact that it's probably the most public and it's the, it's the wackiest of everything. The president and a porn star. The president and a Playboy playmate. These aren't, these aren't things that just go away. This, the press had a field day on it. What did that mean to you? And what did she say to you, if anything? Well, she told me that Donald had to be prepared for his whole life to be opened to the media, to the world. Um, and if he won. And in that moment, I thought to myself, and so do you. And I was concerned about Barron, and I was concerned about Melania. But as she always says, do not worry about me. I know exactly who I married. Yeah, she said she would say the same thing to me a lot, which is, don't worry about me. I'm not a, I'm not a wallflower. I'm not, easily to, uh, I'm not easily broken. Ever. And, you know, look, Melania has her rules. She keeps herself mysterious and an enigma for a very, very important reason, which is to keep everyone away and for everyone to believe what they want to believe because they look at her and they see this beautiful, charming, empathetic, kind mother. How could she possibly be married to him? Are you trying to say that she's not? Well, I'm trying to say that in Melania's own words, no audio, no interviews, no questions. She only does what she wants to do in order for the world to know who she is. Because I was often on the other side of much of this, you know, having to be the one who covered up um, to Melania Donald's transgressions. How much do you think she cared? Or do you think that she was even hurt by the allegations of Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal? Look, Donald's worldview is driven by narcissism. You can't be married to someone like that if you're not a narcissist yourself. Who do you think will leave first? You think, do you think Melania will leave Donald? You think Donald will leave Melania? If Trump loses the election, you think she goes bye-bye? You think she'll stand by him? Do you think she'll have a choice? Of course she does. You I mean, don't she think it's has, part of the transactional marriage? Sure, but the transaction also included a payout. The same way he handled it with both Ivana as well as Marla. And I would have to say that there was a time that things looked a little bit iffy in their marriage. You may recall where she wouldn't hold um, his hand. She then claimed it's not true, that she was trying to get her own balance, blah, 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 right? It's very possible that they then sat, they brought the lawyers in, and they redid the, they redid the agreement. I think that she may have potentially, and this I'm only speaking from opinion, I don't know it to be fact, but I think knowing Melania being calculating, which she is, that she may have upped the ante at that point. Look, I think that it's going to play out however it's going to play out, but I do believe that, um, I do believe that they are one and the same. And I don't think that there's anyone else out there that could live with either one of them, knowing what their character is made of, what their stances on our worldviews today, because it is scary out there. And the fact that they can say the things they say and do the things they do, Michael, to me, we have children that we have are leaving here. We have, I mean, again, one of the reasons why I went into the White House, one of the reasons why I went to help Melania and set her up was because having proximity to her, um, I thought I could make a difference. The reality is you realize no matter how close you are and no matter if you're on the inside or the outside, you can't make a difference at all because it is 
the Trump way or no way. Well, I do also remember that at that time, as I was referring, when Melania decided she was going to stay back in New York and wait out the time until the school season was over, that Ivanka decided to take an active role. And I do specifically remember being upstairs and talking to her about it, and she laughed. And she had this, this great, charming laugh about her. <laughs> right? There's no, Michael, there's no way that Ivanka is going to be anything in this White House above and better than me. Right? And I, I remember it like it was yesterday because I really care about Melania. Well, so did I. Right? I, I really did. Yeah. And that's why, again, reading your book, you know, um, Melania and Me, it, it really tore into me. I didn't expect that it was going to do that. You know, to me, because I had a very different, and I do have a different impression of her clearly than you do. But your book sort of brings in so much to explain to me about certain things that she did and why she was doing it. And for that, great book. Thank you. Look, Melania is as strong as Teflon, as Donald is. She lets things slide off of her. And Donald pretends to be bulletproof. He is not. And when he tells you, oh, I have the thickest skin in the world, nobody else could go through what I'm going through and still get up every day and stand and do all the great things I'm doing for America. And so it's bullshit. It is bullshit. It is, it is pure and utter bullshit. Everything bothers him. He is the biggest whiny baby that you've ever seen. The reason that he started going with the whole birtherism is because he started to see his name every single day in the headlines. And he's like, Michael, this is great. This is great. And you're like, no, no, no. It's really not great, boss. You're talking about the president of the United States not being a U.S. citizen. Could you imagine unwinding all of the things that have been done so far to date because it would be unconstitutional for him to, to go on? I mean, it's a really, really tough assertion that you're making, right? So he turned around and he said to me, fuck him. I don't care, right? And then after, of course, the Washington Correspondents' Dinner, that really got to him, and you could see it in his face. I mean, he almost looked as if though he would look like he wanted to cry. So I don't see Donald and Melania. I've seen Melania cry. I've seen her cry three times, but I understand why she was crying. And it had nothing to do with Stormy Daniels or Karen McDougal. It didn't have to do with anything external. It had to do with something that is obviously very important to her. Family's most important to Melania, and I do believe that, and that's the truth. Um, but as far as being, uh, you know, as strong as Teflon Don, when I say that, Michael, I want to reiterate the importance of understanding that she will turn around and feel exactly the same way as she does to public and in private. Unlike Donald, as you just explained, does the complete opposite. He falls apart when no one's looking. Um, she really does have this unbreakable um, aesthetic that is truly part of her moral compass as well. And it is not something that I fully understood before spending time with her in this world, this, you know, in the belly of the beast. Would you say that that's a positive or a negative? I think it's a negative. I think that the most important um, characteristic that we don't have is honesty from this president and his family. And so being able to say one thing and do another 
is the most tragic thing for our country right now. And she is as complicit as he is. And look, the Trumps never express shock. Um, they never admit weakness and they never admit being wrong. So it takes, you know, that would take responsibility for their actions and they won't. So that to me plays into that, what you've just said. Right, because your relationship with Melania went very south just as mine did with Donald. And at the heart of your book, there's an assertion that your firing was really a smokescreen to hide the misdeeds of others, specifically Rick Gates, Tom Barrack, and a host of other people. In my specific case, you know, the smokescreen was the Alan Weisselbergs of the world, the Donald, the Donald Trumps, the Stormy Daniels, the Karen McDougals, the David Peckers, um, and everybody who ended up getting <laughs> limited immunity while I ended up basically being held responsible because what did I do? I paid a porn star to pull the president's pecker? I mean, the whole thing is just so stupid. Tell me about that. Look, a, a false misleading headline ruined my life in a matter of seconds. The White House created a narrative because I wouldn't follow along with the one they wanted me to. I was put in a really tough position. I think it's important for people to know that while I was working for Melania in the White House, I had already hired um, a, a legal, legal defense team um, in January. And um, tell me about the narrative. What was the narrative that they wanted you to stand? Because obviously we all know the narrative for me. No Russia, no Russia, no collusion. You know, Donald had very little to do with Russia to the extent that they got me to change my statement to Congress, in essence, lying, something to which I was and I, I pled guilty to because I was guilty of lying to Congress. Well, same in the sense. Well, the narrative is. First and foremost, that Donald Melania had nothing and knew nothing about the presidential inauguration committee planning. The finances, zero zilch. Nothing took place without Donald's approval. Nothing happened without Melania knowing. And so for me, the narrative was that this was the greatest peaceful transition of power and the most incredible supportive group of Americans coming together to put on the most impressive inauguration that there was no one around to broadcast. You and I actually worked in some respect together during the um, inauguration. I was basically fundraising for Trump, and I raised several millions of dollars for him for the inauguration. And it's my understanding that $107 million was ultimately raised by the committee. Now, I was not on any specific committee. I refused to take a campaign position. I refused to be a part of the transition team. I didn't want to be part of the inaugural committee because I knew that nothing good was going to come out of it. Lo and behold, who's the one that fucking goes to prison? Me, right? But I know there was $107 million that was raised. Well, the committee said they raised $107 million, right? So the money had to go somewhere. Well, was it more than 107 or was it 107? Look, it's self-evident that a war chest of money was accumulated in order to put together a lot of events. For what other reasons it was accumulated for? Maybe Rick Gates has the answers to that. Stephanie, I want to go back to the whole thing regarding Ivanka, because I'm well aware that there's no love between Ivanka and Melania. And I think a lot of it has to do with Ivanka's desperate need for daddy's attention and wanting to play the role of first lady, because you describe in detail Melania's plans and with your help to stop Ivanka in essence from being what you term as a shadow first lady. 
What was Operation Block Ivanka? Well, before I explain that, Michael, I do want to say that in the beginning, Melania truly wanted to possess the ability to have a team, a Lincolnian group of women, bipartisan group of women, that actually could affect change and could create an initiative and platform that would make a difference. That was something that, again, I would have never followed her to D.C. or gone before her to D.C. had that not been the case. Um, She had no support. Zero. 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 I, I know this to be true. Except one person, me. And I have to say, it's that loyalty that brought me down because of my honesty and my integrity in a group of people that it means nothing to. Had we been able to actually create this initiative, social emotional learning for Melania, to actually have a platform to speak about and ring true to the to the so many millions of children that need a better tool set to be able to understand, empathize, and respect and express themselves, we'd have a different world today. You also describe throughout the book Melania as being truly cold and uncaring. And again, very different than the perception that I saw Melania as. And at the height of the family separation crisis at the border, Melania visited a detention center and she had this to say. They're not with their parents and it's sad. But the patrols told me the kids say, wow, I get a bed. I will have a cabinet for my clothes. It's more than they have in their own country where they sleep on the floor. Is that something that she said to you? It is. It's what she was told. And again, it's almost cultish that Donald's own wife either actually believes what she's hearing or she's programmed to believe what she's being told. Well, who was it that said that to her? Because that is the stupidest thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. That, oh, great, we're not sleeping on a floor. How would anybody know where these children are from? And I know that there's this, there are stories about her coming up and saying that there are coyotes and that they're taking children and they're smuggling these children into the country and that they're selling them into slavery, into sex trades and so on. Where did she get this information from? Who's the fucking asshole that actually would tell the first lady these type of stories? And what the hell is going on in her head that she's listening to it and then repeating it to even her best friend? Look, in her own words, Melania says, I'll handle the consequences or no consequences. I don't care. And I know exactly what I want to do or what I want to wear or what I want to say. She is her own person, Michael. If that is how she envisions and believes that these children are being treated, those are, that's, again, I, I could tell you something, Michael. You don't go and repeat it if you don't believe it, right? It's not about who told her. It doesn't matter if it came from a patrol officer or if it came from Donald or if it came from Jared or whomever it came from. The first lady of the United States is visiting and seeing these children with her own eyes, hearing with her own ears. The yells and the screams and the crying. I mean, I saw visions um, on television of children in diapers walking around with the diapers almost touching the floor because they didn't have diapers. They give them a mylar 
blanket. They give them a bottle of water. They turn around and they tell them, go find a place to sleep on the floor. And then this is something that's supposed to be acceptable, especially somebody who's an immigrant themselves, who had told me on so many occasions about when she first came, you know, into the modeling business, how that she was one of these poor girls that came from Slovenia and that she was living in France and that they lived in these terrible conditions. And then when she came to the United States, she again lived in terrible squalor. Then that squalor has to be like five-star Trump resort living compared to what they were doing to these children. Explain to me why Melania never wanted to talk about immigration herself. I don't know. You tell me. Did she ever discuss it with you? Well, I really felt strongly during the planning of the inauguration that Melania, I felt that Melania should represent the United States by wearing American designers. She didn't think that that was important whatsoever. But Melania's mantra is, I don't care. And it holds true to the belief that she is here in the United States now. She is an American citizen. She does not care whether or not your parents, if they were immigrants, were allowed into the United States or not. Hers are. And so... Right, I was involved in that year. Yes. And so the reality, Michael, is that, again, it's so... It took me a long time to write this book because it took me a long time to take a step back to actually understand who Melania was because I did not feel that way while I was with her. This is very complicated. Well, as it was for me in writing my book and referring and ref- reflecting back upon all of the Donald J. Trump stories. I do want to ask you something as we're closing. So, you know, I cared very much for Melania as a person, and I had spent an enormous amount of time with her, helping her do certain things that she needed um, personally. And I was always curious about the raid, when they raided my home, the hotel, my law office, first time ever in history that they raided the personal attorney of the president's law office, breaking all attorney-client privilege. Did Melania ever say anything about that to you in regard to me? She said it was too bad. That's it. And she wasn't involved and doesn't know anything about it. And she just doesn't care. I don't care. I don't care. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, You certainly opened up my eyes with Melania and me, and I would certainly recommend, the same way I recommend Disloyal, if anybody wants to understand the true psyche of Donald J. Trump, you got to read Disloyal. If you want to understand the true psyche of Melania, our first lady, and then put the two books together so they become technically bookends, now you'll understand who's occupying the people's house. Let me tell you, Michael, after reading your book, and I think I told you this, I was so shocked because I didn't know Donald at all. I mean, I would see him in passing, we'd have dinner, and I'd just listen to him talk about himself. So to hear and to understand what you went through with Donald and understanding that loyalty to him and that unconditional, unconditional loyalty Um, it's only something I think that people can understand if they walk in your shoes. And I know I've walked in your shoes when it comes to Melania. Um, And at the end of the day, you have to be honest and look in the mirror and know who you are, which you have done respectfully, um, come to terms with who you are and what you did. And I've come to terms with the fact that I didn't know anything about policy and I got involved with a group of people that I knew nothing about 
And it was very naive of me to believe I could make a difference. But I think that the most important thing for everyone to remember reading Disloyal or Melania and Me is that these are the people that are telling you they care so much about you. And you now have two people that have just spoken to you and told you, based on fact, based on substance evidence. Based on more than a decade of relationships with each and every one of the individuals. So please don't make the same mistake we did. And I mean that, Michael. I, won't, I do not want people to make the same mistake we did. And that's how I end my book as well. Now you have all the information that you need to make a determination for November who you want to win the election in 2020. Well, thank you again, Stephanie. This has been great. Truly appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Michael. And now for today's tweets. This one comes from General Mark Hurtling as a direct message. He writes, Mr. Cohen, I hope you don't mind this direct message or the presumption of this note, but I wanted to thank you for writing your book. I normally don't read tell-alls, but I wanted to read yours after seeing you on Maddow, but also because after years of service to our country, I'm still baffled how anyone can support a character like Trump. I thought your book might give me better insight. It did, but I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around how others are so blind to the fact that Trump is such an antithesis to who we aspire to be as a people and nation. General Hurtling, thank you for your direct message and for your service to this country. There's really no words that I can say I agree with your message in its entirety. Donald Trump is the antithesis of everything that we should want to aspire for in this country. And God willing, if the result of the election comes out the way that I would like to see it, there's a possibility that we're going to be able to return to normalcy. So thank you again. And since we're talking about heroes, I'd like to also thank all of our first responders. You too are heroes. Not only are you heroes, without your help, the death toll would be substantially greater. And that's of course no thanks to the mishandling of the COVID pandemic by our president. Not only are these first responders dealing with issues like COVID-19, but this week has brought a problem to me and to my family. My 85-year-old father, unfortunately, was stricken uh, with a cardiac issue and required an ablation as well as a cardiac pacemaker. I want to thank the doctors and the entire medical staff for everything they did in order to ensure my father's health. It's not easy going through what we're all going through in this country with Trump derangement syndrome when you have coupled with that the health of your loved one. So again, I want to thank the entire medical staff, the doctors, the nurses, the first responders, the, the technicians. I want to thank everybody at the JFK Medical Center in Atlantis, Florida. They've did a wonderful job on my father and they've brought some happiness to me and my family during a moment of time that, let's just say, is less than happy. So thank you. So again, I want to thank the medical center, the JFK Medical Center in Atlantis, Florida, the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the first responders. And I just want to say, God bless you and stay safe. And now, today's mea culpa. 
I'm curious to learn how history will judge Melania in the coming years and decades. If the legacy of Donald J. Trump is the story of a nation that became unhinged in the manner of its paranoid and despotic leader, where to serve Donald Trump meant to betray the very core of your being. And to stand by him was to stand complicit to a host of high crimes and misdemeanors. Where does that leave Melania Trump? And it was for the people and for the left wing media who are criticizing me and want to show them that I don't care. You could criticize whatever you want to say, but it will not stop me to do what I feel it's right. In one scenario, there could be a future, perhaps quite soon, where she no longer poses any use to Donald Trump as a prop or accessory and she's cast off. Or in another scenario, it's Trump who is cast off upon being sent to prison. Perhaps then she will reveal the truth or cry out that she too was a victim. But that seems highly unlikely. Melania is fond of reminding people that she knew who Trump was when she married him. And if you're married to Donald J. Trump, then you're living in a near constant state of humiliation. If not for his misdeeds and serial philandering, then for his extreme narcissism and sociopathy. What kind of person is willing to share his bed at night? What is it like to go to bed with evil? It's not always pleasant. What do they talk about together? Do they watch The Bachelor? I simply cannot fathom what it's like to share a life with someone who cares for no one or anything but himself. Sure, Melania gets the spoils. She has the power in a platform. And for some, that's enough. But how does she steal herself at night for his intimacy? Often those with the ugliest hearts are superficially beautiful, and that's enough to pretend. But Trump at this point has rotted both inside and out. He's more like some orange-dusted creature, a walking cartoon caricature with a urine-dipped comb-over. You're a beautiful man, you have fantastic hair. His macho swagger and bearing may have made him at one point a Lothario in his own mind, the pussy-grabbing prince of primetime. But those days are long gone. How come the deeply troubled women? Yes. You know, deeply, deeply troubled. Right. They're always the best at bed. I've seen the man in his jockey shorts and it's not pretty. Now it's just sad and gross. He's old and creepy. He's the guy who openly fantasizes about dating his own daughter. I said that if Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. You know? <laughs> Stop it. By the way, your daughter. She's beautiful. Can I say this? A piece of ass. Yeah. She looks more voluptuous than ever. She's and actually always been very voluptuous. And this is the man Melania chooses to stand by. The man she says she already knows. I would feel bad for her if she didn't so completely relish her role as Melania Trump. But that's what's so horrific in all of this. Despite all that's in front of her, the moral rot, the racism, the lies and corruption, Melania keeps wanting more. And ultimately, that's what's so revealing in all of this, how far you sink. How willing you become to debase yourself. Hello? Hey. Hi, how are you? You are so hot. Oh, thank you. I see pictures of you, I can't believe it, you're a dream. Oh. You are so hot. Are you coming down to that? Yes, I am, baby. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I want you to put on your hottest outfit. Okay, no problem. What are you going to wear? Oh, uh, I don't tell you now. You will see. Let me ask you this. What are you wearing right now? Uh, it would be almost much. comical if it weren't so mean? gross and compromised. <laughs> almost. Again, I know all of this because I used to wade in his filthy pool. I was his alligator in the sewer. Of my myriad of daily trespasses against the truth, the one that I am most ashamed of is how I lied for him to Melania. 
Upon catching and killing the latest sex scandal and obtaining an affidavit from an intimidated porn star or glamour model, I had to trudge upstairs and look upon Melania with a straight face and tell her none of it was true. He asked me to pay off an adult film star with whom he had an affair and to lie about it to his wife, which I did. It was a fiction in which we were both complicit. I would lie to her and she would accept my lies, betraying nothing. And I have to live with that. But all of us possess agency, the ability to say enough is enough and ultimately to say no. I didn't do anything to stop what was happening, so I should be judged accordingly. My hope is that I can make up for that now with my actions today and be forgiven by history tomorrow. But Melania is trapped in a nightmare of her own making and one that I helped to build. May God have mercy on my soul. Thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. list is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Susan, it's so great to finally be able to get together again. Oh, it sure is. And I really appreciate you picking up the bill. I'm happy to. I've got the extra cash. Since we've all been driving so much more again, I've been using GetUpside, the free gas app that pays you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get paid cash when you buy gas with the GetUpside app? Yes, up to 25 cents a gallon. Cash back every time I buy gas. Does that actually add up to anything? Some months I make 200 to 300 bucks. (laughs) 
wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the free GetUpside app now. Download the free GetUpside app now in the App Store or Google Play to save up to 25 cents a gallon when you buy gas. Use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's up to 50 cents a gallon on your next fill-up. You can cash out anytime to PayPal or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code FILL for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code FILL.